Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Michael Ian Black about his book, A Better Man, A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son, a compelling reflection on masculinity and its sometimes devastating consequences for human relations and American culture writ large. Michael is an actor, comedian, writer, and podcast host. He has created and starred in many TV shows and movies and has written books for adults and children, including the award-winning book, I'm Bored, I'm Sad, and I'm Worried. Michael Ian Black, welcome to That Said. Thank you. So nice to be here. So this book of yours, A Better Man, A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son, is a book that came to mind immediately after the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Nivaldi, Texas. And I thought of you because you say in your book that part of the inspiration for your book was the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. So what I'd like to do in our conversation is talk about you and your upbringing and your role as a comedian in life and then turn some to mass shooting and the advice you have for your son, which is what this book is, a mostly serious letter to your son. That's how I'd love to proceed. Hey, man, this is your circus, and I'm just happy to be a monkey in it. Okay. So let's start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your childhood and your relationship with your parents and your upbringing, if we can get a picture of who you were as a kid. Sure. Sure. I had, uh, you know, for the time, a fairly unconventional upbringing. My parents divorced when I was five because my mom got involved with uh, the neighbor lady and uh, they started a relationship. So I was raised in a lesbian household, my mother, her partner, and my siblings and her son. Um, you know, at the time that was not, uh, particularly common or particularly, uh, encouraged. And so, you know, there was a, it was, it, it, there was a little bit of tension around that and, you know, neighbors and living in that sort of situation. Uh, it wasn't a particularly good relationship. It was, there was a lot of, um, I would uh, sort of verbal abuse, and it was always very tense in the house. And uh, yeah, this was in suburban New Jersey. I knew very early on that I didn't want to stay in New suburban New Jersey, that I wanted to go do other things. And so I left when I was 17, uh, a recent high school graduate, and moved to New York City to study acting. But your relationship with your dad was also complex. You talked about your mom and, and her partner and, and the difficulties that presented for you. But your dad and you had a, I, I don't know if it's strained is a fair description of it, but a relationship that was short-lived and a bit intense. So can you tell us about that? Sure. My, my, when my parents divorced, you know, my, my siblings and I still saw my dad and we saw him pretty much every other weekend or so. And uh, he was a very nice guy who was not a particularly adept dad. Um, he just didn't have the 
emotional intelligence or social intelligence, and he didn't really know how to interact with kids. And so I wouldn't say it was strained in the sense that we weren't at loggerheads or anything, but we just didn't really communicate very effectively with each other. He didn't know how to express his love for his kids. And he did love us. I, I don't doubt that, but he just, he wasn't equipped to, to communicate that. And he died when I was 12. He was found by the police slumped over in his car and they thought maybe he'd been assaulted. Um, they didn't really know what had happened to him. He had to have brain surgery that night, which he survived. Um, but a few months later it caused some complications and he went back into the hospital and, and died while he was in the hospital that second time. So it was, uh, awful, of course, but it felt doubly tragic to me because I felt like at that age, I was just starting to learn how to speak to him. And I felt like he was sort of learning how to speak to us. And so I felt like I lost him at a, at a particularly bad time. Yeah. You describe him as being verbally unable to express his love for you, but also symbolically in the sense that when he had his new home after the divorce, he never got you or your siblings a bed to sleep in. Yeah. We always slept in sleeping bags on the floor. And when I was a kid, like I didn't really think about it too much, but as I got older, it started to rub me the wrong way. You know, it's, it was a way of saying, this isn't your home. And you know, in retrospect, like, I don't know what he was thinking. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, of course, you want your kids to feel like when they're with you that they're in a home. But he never, he never did that. And I, I wish I could ask him why, because it, it seems insane to me now. Yeah. So you have a, a father who's not expressive. And you had a mom who I remember you telling the story in the book of watching the movie nine to five and mm -hmm. the impact that had, maybe you could talk about that for a minute. That was. So my mom and her partner, you know, they became pretty strident feminists for good reason. Um, they were active in the feminist movement and in the feminist community. They subscribed to Ms. Magazine. It's the only magazine I remember ever showing up at the house and when the movie nine to five came out, they went to see it. And then they're like, oh, we got to take the boys to go see nine to five. And so we went to see nine to five and I thought it was really funny. And if you don't know that movie, it is a female revenge fantasy in which the overworked, underpaid women at a company kidnap their male chauvinist boss and sort of show the world that women are just as good, if not better than men. And, you know, the, the message I think of that film was perfectly fine for the times, especially, but you know, it, it resonates with me now thinking about it. Like they, they, they were so hell bent on elevating women that they intentionally or unintentionally 
denigrated men my entire upbringing. And that had a lasting effect on me. And, and going to see nine to five was a sort of perfect encapsulation of that, of, you know, here's the message we're sending to our boys in this household, which is, you know, men are terrible. And, you know, that's not what you want to hear when you're, when you're a boy. Yeah. And you say, when we'll talk about your letter to your son and talking about masculinity and toxic masculinity. You said that the message was that men suck and you worried whether or not you carried with you that suckiness. I did. I was concerned that, you know, in my household, the message was men are bad and I didn't want to be bad. You know, I didn't want to be a bad person. And I worried that just by nature of my own maleness, I was sort of destined to be. And look, I'm not a great person. I think I'm fine but I'm probably no better or worse than most other men and no better or worse than most other women. There's nothing inherently sucky about men, but I had to, it took me a long time to sort of learn that. Well, you recite that wonderful George Carlin line of women are crazy and men are stupid. And the main reason that women are crazy is that men are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a funny line. And, uh, but I don't think it's particularly true. I don't think men are stupid. I don't think women are crazy, but there is some truth to it. Well, you describe it as not stupidity so much as low emotional intelligence. Well, there's something about something else I say in the book is how women have been forced to learn the language of men because the dominant culture is male. It's a male-centered and oriented culture. And so men will often say, well, I don't understand this woman. You know, she's, she's crazy. Like, I, I don't know. She, she doesn't make sense to me. And the reason isn't because they're crazy. It's because men haven't had to learn the language of women, the, the, the language that women are speaking. And the analogy that I use is like, there is a Latvian language. But most Latvians speak Russian because Russia is the dominant power in that region. But most Russians don't speak Latvian because they don't need to, to learn Latvian. Well, it, I think for most of our history, it's been the same with men and women. Yeah. And it, Rob Becker, I think, encapsulated it pretty nicely in his defending the caveman routine. What did he say? I don't remember it. Well, oh, it's a wonderful one-hour stand-up monologue called Defending the Caveman. And what he says principally is that in cave times, men would stand out in the woods silently waiting for a prey and the women would be in the cave talking does this work so they became communicative communal mm -hmm. creatures and men became isolated and he says you can see that behavior pattern um, all the way through modern man it's, hmm. it's a very clever routine as a comedian you would like it i think i'm sure i would so anyway before we get back to the low emotional intelligence of men and toxic masculinity, which forms a large part of your book, you left us off in the narrative of you decided to go to New York. You started college, but that didn't last too long because why would you go to college when you got an opportunity to be a traveling ninja turtle? That's right. I did get an opportunity right at the beginning of my junior year to travel the country as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, they were doing a stage show, a rock and roll stage show of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
And uh, my friend and I were sort of given an opportunity to travel ahead of the show and do promotion for the show. So we took the opportunity because it seemed like it would be a great way to see the country and get paid to do it. But really, I think what was going on with me was that I was I was feeling sort of ill at ease at school. I was sort of depressed at school for reasons that I didn't really understand. And uh, so it seemed like a good escape hatch. So I took it. I grabbed it. You promised your mom you'd go back to college. But and I meant it when I said it, but I lied. You, well, you know, there's still time for you to go back to college. You know, there's no- There is time, but I feel like at this point, getting an acting degree might be a little bit frivolous. Mm. You never know. Steven Spielberg went back and got his film degree. They tell the story. Yeah, they tell the story that you know he had dropped out of uh, college and we went back to, to film school. I don't know if this is apocryphal or true. And he had to give a thesis that was to graduate. And I think he put like the DVD of um, Schindler's List on the, <laughs> on the professor's desk. <laughs> And said, here, you know, here's my final paper. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope he got an A. I hope so, too. Uh, it was a pretty good movie. Pretty good. <laughs> so now I'd like to turn to the more serious part of the book and ask you to tell us what inspired you to write this mostly serious uh, letter to your son, whether there was a particular event that gave rise to it or whether it was just part of this self-reflective journey that you seem to be on. Well, as you alluded to earlier, when the Parkland shooting happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, I had been paying a lot of attention to gun violence since Sandy Hook because my kids were in elementary school at that time and Sandy Hook was the town next to ours in Connecticut where I was raising my family. So obviously that had an enormous impact on everybody in that community, me included. So when Parkland happened, my kids were in high school. I had been active on social media talking about gun violence for years at that point. And so, you know, I got on my Twitter soapbox as I do when these things happen. And I started screaming into the void as I do when these things happen. But I just posed a question that I I didn't feel like I was being, I didn't feel like anybody was asking, which is why is it when these events happen that it's always boys and young men who are pulling the trigger? It's, it's, it's never females. It's always males. And it was such an obvious question that I had never even considered it. But so I just asked the question, why, why is it? And, you know, I shut my laptop and that was that. But then I got an email from the New York Times saying, hey, do you want to expand this into a into an op-ed? And I was like, I don't think so. I don't think I'm really qualified to do that. You know, I'm just a guy who spouts off on VH1. And uh, they said, but we're the New York Times. And I was like, oh, okay, well, then I guess I should because you're the New York Times. So I did. I wrote the op-ed that came out and then a publisher came to me and said, do you want to expand this op-ed into a book? And I said the same thing. I was like, I just don't think I'm the guy to do this. I'm just not qualified. And they were like, but we'll pay you very little money. 
And I was like, all right, keep talking, keep talking. <laughs> and uh, after some persuasion, I decided to do it. I decided to, to write the book, but it, it really wasn't an easy decision for me. There were, there were, there were many reasons not to do it. Not the least of which was, again, I'm not qualified. I don't have any credentials in terms of being a gender theorist or a sociologist or a psychologist or even a college graduate as we have established. But I did have a son who was about to graduate from high school and I did have a little bit of a platform and it seemed like maybe that was enough. So that's how I chose to approach it as a dad. And I thought for a non-sociologist, this would be a very good thesis for you to get your BA in sociology. Oh, shoot. Maybe it isn't too late to go back to college. If it's yeah, that yeah. easy, I can just drop the book on the desk. Exactly. You enroll, you enroll virtually <laughs> and then send them the book as your thesis. So part of your thesis here, you ask a series of questions in the book. You ask, why are boys committing these acts of violence? Why are boys falling behind girls in school? Why do we teach young men to be so disrespectful? Why are men in particular killing themselves in greater numbers? You ask very important questions and you try very hard to answer them. And you write, one of the things that you wrote that interested me is that you say that School shootings are the ultimate manifestation of white male privilege. These shooters aren't content only to merely destroy themselves. They want to destroy the entire world. So can you talk about that, please? One of the phenomenon, phenomenons, one of the characteristics of these shootings is that they are overwhelmingly committed by white men. And so you have to ask yourself, why? What is that about? Um, not exclusively, of course, but overwhelmingly. And my theory on it is that it is a kind of manifestation of white privilege. It is a way of creating a sense of grandiosity and self-importance and there has to be a kind of ego involved that would allow you to do that. It's not enough for you to kill yourself. You have to take down the entire world with you. What kind of narcissism and privilege allows somebody to feel that they have that right? I do think it is the ultimate manifestation of white privilege. It is a way of saying I am more important than everybody else. And it, it, I guess when you look at it through that lens, it doesn't surprise me that it's overwhelmingly white guys who are committing those crimes. And these days, interestingly, as you point out, it's young white guys. Most of the people are, you set up the, the trajectory is shooter buys a semi-automatic weapon just after turning 18, post images, intended to display their strength and menace, then they use weapons on innocent people. And that's the paradigm. It repeats itself. And that's why I want to speak to you, because I read this book, and then Uvaldi happened, and I thought, oh, my God, Michael Ian Black, 
is right on target with his writings about this stuff. And you're yeah. right. Uh, sure. But, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not putting any pieces together that anybody can't. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately obvious, you know, it's, it's just, it, it, the pattern is glaring. It's right there. It repeats itself again and again and again. I knew when I was writing the book that it would happen again. And in fact, as I was concluding the book, it was happening. You know, these events are increasingly common. They're not going anywhere. And we need to, you know, I mean, it's, it sounds stupid to say that we need to deal with it or address it or figure it out. But the fact of the matter is we aren't, we aren't doing anything about it. Um, and it's, it's just imperative that we do not because even though these events are common and they are, they are still sort of in the, in the vast scope of, of the breadth of this country, they are still rare. Okay. But aside from the carnage that they cause and the lives they upend and destroy, not just the people they kill, but the people who are left. Separate from that, the effect that those shootings have in this country is that they, they create in us a kind of perpetual state of anxiety. And so we are always living in a low-level terroristic state. And I mean that literally. The United States of America right now is a low-level terroristic state because the purpose of terrorism is to use violence to perpetuate a political agenda. That is the, the definition of terrorism. And unfortunately, what's happened in this country is a small number of people have prioritized guns, gun violence, and more than anything, gun sales over the safety and security of the population. The NRA is their mouthpiece. When these events happen, gun sales skyrocket. And if so, it is in the best interests of the NRA and their affiliates for these events to happen. That is why gun control does not proceed in this country. It is a pure money and power grab. It is, in my estimation, the definition of terrorism, and we are living with terrorism on a daily basis because our body politic refuses to end it. The thing about terrorism is that people have to become radicalized in a sense, and the thought is, well, what causes this radicalization? And you talk about that. I don't think you talk about it in terms of radicalization of terrorists, but you talk about the state of mind of the young male. And you say of them, and I agree with you, that too many men, because this is the way we're taught, only allow themselves two basic modes of expression, anger and withdrawal. And that this, these mass shooters, is a reflection of anger and withdrawal, and you take it in combination with 
the soaring rates of self-harm and suicide among teenagers and young adults. And you get a picture of the radicalized American male, young American male mind. Yeah, I think, I mean, I shouldn't, I don't use the word radicalized. No, that's my word. I, I yeah. get it. And I do think there is an element of the population that is radicalized, young, the young male population. They are radicalized in different ways and in different philosophies. But I think undergirding that radicalization, for lack of a better word, is a, a lack of self-identity and a lack of understanding what their role should be in the culture. And I think underpinning that is the shifting sands of masculinity, understanding what it means to be a man in the culture. I think the reason that some boys and men are having a hard time understanding that is because the definition of manhood seems to be constantly changing, seems to be constantly evolving. And men are, a lot of men are resistant to change for a variety of reasons. They feel like they're under attack for a variety of reasons. They feel like they are being, um, uh, blamed for all the world's ills. And it's understandable on some level that they would retreat into a corner and get their claws out and say, well, you know, if you want me to be the bad guy, I'll be the bad guy. That is not excusing bad behavior, but it, I think it at least makes it understandable. And if their only outlet is anger and withdrawal, you write that this provides no useful outlets for male vulnerability. If you can't turn to others for help and ask what to do when you're bewildered or frustrated, you cannot proceed as a normal functioning human being in our society. Yeah, if your only avenues are to totally shut down or to lash out. Some people are going to shut down. Some people are going to lash out. And uh, some people are going to shut down first and then lash out. And, and I'm familiar with this. I'm familiar with these feelings. I, I'm somebody who, you know, for example, when I lost my dad, I shut down for years, you know. I made myself emotionally unavailable for years because I didn't know how to process grief. I didn't know how to process my own bewilderment, my own you know, sense of outrage and injustice and fear. You know, it can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. It doesn't necessarily manifest itself in these spectacular displays of violence. I mean, they're, those people are the outliers. But we certainly see a lot of examples of men doing, you know, committing self-harm, committing harm against others, um, being, you know, unproductive in, in whatever way you want to define unproductive and not feeling like they have a way to move forward in the culture. And we see the results. We see that men are, as you said earlier, falling behind in school. They're falling behind in the workplace. They're killing themselves in greater numbers. There's a lot more addiction in the culture. There's a lot more anxiety and depression in the culture. Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't pin it all on, you know, 
the shifting norms of gender, but I do think that that plays a part. And when men don't have the vocabulary and the emotional toolbox to deal with their frustrations and, and insecurities, you know, you're going to get bad outcomes. Yeah. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, in a report that I read in the Washington Post, and which you talk about in the book, is that of the 156 mass shootings between 2001 and 2016, 54% related to domestic or family violence. Mm -hmm. It's a common pattern. You see it all the time. And in fact, what you'll often see is, uh, and I, this, I think this was the case in the Uvalde shooting as well. Somebody commits an act of a mass shooting and then they go to that shooter's home and the person that they live with is dead. You know, I think it was the grandmother in this case. You know, they killed the people that are closest to them, and then they go out and kill everybody else. So you talk about this elaborate system of ritualized masculinity. I want to start moving toward your letter to your son, and you ask the question of yourself and that which you want to talk to your son as he is about to embark on his college career of what does it mean to be a man? And can you talk to us about your infinite access as you call it, and Kenneth Mas Macho. Yeah, so there was a sketch on SNL in 1977, hosted by Bill Murray. It was a Spanish game show called Kenneth Mas Macho. And the premise of the sketch was you look at photos of two people, and just by looking at their photos, you have to say who is more macho. And they show like Ricardo Montalban and Lorenzo Lamas, and the contestant has to guess. And what's funny about it is that there is, you could make an argument for one answer to be correct over the other. I think the correct answer was Lorenzo Lamas is, is más macho than Ricardo Montalban. And you go, well, on the face of that, that's absurd. But what makes it funny is that there is something legitimate about that. And what makes it tragic is that 50 years later, it's just as resonant because we cannot define masculinity as a culture, but each and every one of us is somehow fluent in the language of masculinity. We can each one of us identify what is more macho, quienes mas macho. And you could arrange every object in the world along what I call the infinite axis of manliness and pick any two random things and I could tell you, and you could tell me what's more macho. So I'm just looking around my room right now. I see a lamp and a pillow, which is more macho. Well, the lamp is more macho than the pillow because a pillow is soft. A lamp is hard. It illuminates. The pillow is for cuddling. Like it's stupid that I can point to a pillow and a lamp and know which is more macho just by just and know it intuitively. You know, it's absurd, but it's correct. And yet what's the weird thing about it is that although we know fluently, we're all fluent in this language, what's more macho, none of us have a good working knowledge of masculinity. None of us has a good definition of what that means. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a second. I love the line that you wrote, which is the only thing separating RuPaul from Chuck Norris is glitter. Sure. Because all of gender is about putting on a costume, you know? 
Chuck Norris is putting on a costume. RuPaul is putting on a costume. And they're both drag shows in a certain respect. You know, they're both heightened. They're both exaggerations. They're both caricatures. And so, yeah, the only difference in my mind is, is the glitter and the fun that RuPaul seems to be having that Chuck Norris does not seem to be having. Well, and Chuck Norris's politics are leave a lot to be (laughs) desired. But I do see him beat up people a lot on Facebook reels. That's always enjoyable. (laughs) Now, so you also talk about in trying to understand masculinity and this infinite access, you talk about the changing paradigm of work and what that has meant to what you call the blurring of man's traditional sense of identity, community, and purpose. So maybe we can talk a little bit about it, because you put it on a wonderful historic timeline as you attempt to understand these behaviors and what is a good working definition of masculinity as you're going to get ready to tell your son, here are things that you should think about. Yeah. Well, traditionally, the role of the man in the family unit has been to provide and to protect. And when it comes to providing, um, you know, a few hundred years ago, the family unit tended to be agrarian. They were living on a farm. They were uh, divvying up the chores of the farm. They were both man and woman workers in that unit. When the Industrial Revolution happened, men started to pour into the cities to work these machines and women were left behind to raise the kids. And that's the model that our, the last several generations, five, six, seven generations had become accustomed to. It's the result of the industrial revolution. Well, the brawn and the muscle And the sweat equity that used to be required in the Industrial Revolution is no longer nearly as relevant in the information age. And when you couple that with the women's movement of the last 50 or 60 years in which women were banging down the door and said, hey, we want to be independent. We want to get into the workplace. We want to have the same opportunities as men. And when you couple that with technological changes that allow for globalization, and when you couple that with demographic changes that allow um, and demand people other than the sort of, you know, burly white union worker to be in the workforce, you're left with a certain share of the population that does not feel like their role as traditional provider and protector is needed. Um, And it is true as provider, Women are now in the workforce. Women are now independent. Women are not relying on men in the same financial way that they used to be. And as protector, you know, the way our culture works no longer demands that men sit outside on the front porch with a shotgun. Women are capable of protecting themselves and society is engineered in a way to provide some protection and safety. The traditional role of men has to evolve. It has to change. And the traditional attributes that allowed men to sort of flourish in, let's call it the industrial 
revolution age of masculinity, strength and um, uh, fortitude and and a kind of stiff upper lip. That stuff is still valuable in its way, but in the workforce of today, which is far more collaborative and demands far better communication skills and empathy, those skills are just not as in demand anymore. So from a purely practical point of view, for men to compete in the global economy, they have to figure their shit out. Like they just have to figure out how to get their acts together. Yeah. You write that in response to this changing paradigm, you see two responses. You see adaption where they adapt and they embrace empathy and cooperation and learn to ask for help, which is antithetical to the grin and bear it, suck it up sort of nature of manliness on your infinite axis axis or retreat. And many, many people are retreating, huddling, as you call it, behind the castle wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what happens is men can only retreat so far. You can only move so far back until your back is up against the ocean and you have to figure out what to do next. You know, you have to make your last stand. And these last stands, I think, often are these eruptions of violence that you see. It is the kind of, you know, charge of the, of the light brigade, you know, moving forward. And they see themselves as some sort of hero mowing down their enemies before, you know, being taken down themselves. I would like to help men not feel like they're in constant retreat. I would like to give men the tools to adapt so that they don't feel like they're constantly in retreat, that they don't feel like they're being besieged. The world is changing. That has nothing to do with, you know, drag shows at libraries. It has nothing to do with... I don't know, whoever the current enemy du jour is. It's a lot more complicated than that. There are tidal forces at play that you cannot stop. Um, and so you have to adapt. The world is changing. We cannot go back to 1830. It's just not going to happen. And so, you know, you can move to the middle of Montana and you can go off grid and you can become self-sufficient. And that's great. If you want to do that, that's the life you want to live, you know, fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to engage with the world as a guy, you're going to have to figure out how to do that. And that's what I'm trying to do with this book is at least set the table for men to start having that conversation. You write about your own retreat. Now we've talked about people who you just mentioned go to Montana and live off grid. And then you have others who huddle behind the castle walls, whether it be the Moose Lodge or the Elk Lodge or Mar-a-Lago and mm -hmm. they rail against the changing world and romanticize the past. But to my knowledge, you've never engaged in, in mass shooting. And if you have, don't admit it on this podcast, <laughs> but you do say of yourself that you developed your sense of humor, your sort of snarkyish, your word, sense of humor as a way of retreating. Mm -hmm. So retreat manifests itself in different ways. Yours was through humor. Maybe we can talk a little bit about it because it's important to understand what constitutes retreat. 
Yeah, withdrawal, as I said earlier, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go out and commit an act of mass violence. In my case, it meant erecting a kind of emotional barrier that separated me from the rest of the world. And the way that I was able to communicate effectively was through jokes and sarcasm and being deadpan. And that allowed me to get some positive attention without having to open up in any real way. I could be the deadpan guy talking on VH1 about Cabbage Patch dolls and get a lot of laughs and make some money and get a lot of positive affirmation. And I didn't have to in any way deal with my own feelings. I didn't have to open up. Some guys take up guitar, you know, some guys take up Scrabble. Like there's a reason that men become obsessive about certain things in a way that women don't. The example that I use in the book is Scrabble. And I talk about how the Scrabble national championships have always been won by men. And that is counterintuitive. There's no reason why that should be. Scrabble is a game that does not afford any advantage to men over women. But what it does do is lend itself to the kind of obsessive study that men so often fall into. And when one of the women who was playing Scrabble at the championships was asked, why is it that men always win? And she said, I think the quote is, because we have a life. And that rang really true to me. Men withdraw. And we have to focus our energies and attention somewhere. When we can't deal with our own emotions, all of that energy has to go somewhere. So why not have it go towards memorizing the Scrabble dictionary? Why not have it go towards learning to play the guitar or, in my case, exhibiting humor? It doesn't have to go to violence. Um, it usually doesn't. But the root cause is, I think, the same thing, which is that we become constrained as people, and we have to find some sort of outlet. And those are the results. Yeah, well, but you talk in terms of needing the tools emotionally to find the outlet that'll take you toward being sort of a empathetic person living in a world that requires cooperation and mm -hmm. communication to succeed. And you say without that, they will not find happiness. That yeah. at the root of this inability, this toxic masculinity is that which prevents you from finding happiness or you use the word joy. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, what are we trying to do in this life? You know, it's a, it's a stupid question but it's also maybe the simplest question. And again, it's an obvious question. And to me, what we're trying to do in this life as individuals is find joys, to find happiness. And happiness does not need to mean, and probably doesn't usually mean, a kind of gleeful exuberance. Instead, and you mentioned this before, it should mean a sense of identity, community, and purpose. And to find those things you really need to develop yourself enough as a human to be able to engage with a community, to be able to have a sense of purpose and 
more than that, or, or maybe in conjunction with that, be able to share that with that community. You know, a sense of purpose is fine in and of itself. It provides more joy when you can share it. And to, and to have that, you really need to develop a, an emotional toolbox that is, is useful for you. You know, you can't just, you can't just have a hammer in there. You know, you need other tools. There's a quote that's attributed to John Lennon. I don't know whether he actually said it, but it's attributed to him. And it, the story is that he says that when he was five years old, his mother told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I wrote down happy. And they said, I didn't understand the assignment. And I said, they didn't understand life. Well, that's brilliant. And I never heard that. And um, it's so funny because I, <laughs> I just said it's brilliant. And then I'm going to say, cause I said the same thing in my book. So therefore right. I'm brilliant. But I, I use a similar example. I say when kids go to school, boys, I'm talking about, they're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Not what do you think will make you happy when you grow up? And it's a, it's a difference. There's a difference there. Um, but girls traditionally weren't the assumption for women. And it's not true, but there was an assumption for women was that their happiness would be ensured by motherhood. We know that's not true, but, uh, but there was at least, I think, some thought towards girls that they would find happiness, that they would find purpose and contentment in that role. But male happiness was never considered. And, you know, you can kind of understand that. You can kind of go, well, you know, you got to just get through the day, kid. You know, you got to put enough food in your mouth, uh, in your family's mouth to survive. Like happiness, you know, that's not on the on the list of priorities right now. But the fact is, I don't think most people want to go through life unhappy. And I think most people do want to find the thing that gives them identity, community, and purpose. And that should be considered when we're talking to our kids. That should be considered when, you know, we're going for guidance counseling in school. That it's not enough to say, what do you want to be? Meaning, what occupation do you want to have? Because an occupation isn't necessarily designed to foster happiness. It's designed to generate economic growth. And as we know, those two things are not necessarily related. You say in the book, as we transition now in this final part of the interview, to you becoming a parent, and this becomes the letter to your son part of the book, you say about parenting that the day your son was born was the first time you felt that you crossed over from boyhood, even if you've been doing man-like things, getting married and having a job and walking the dogs and stuff, throwing out the trash, but it, you cross over from boyhood into manhood, which is really where you start this journey of, now I have to think about myself as a person responsible for raising my son. Mm -hmm. It is, a, I think it is a profound moment for any parent, 
for me, it was leaving the hospital um, with my newborn and my wife in the car. And, you know, we lived maybe a mile from the hospital and that was the longest mile I have ever driven. I mean, I was just terrified driving that car, leaving that parking lot, making my way ever so slowly to the safety of my house. It was a kind of awesome terror, the sense that, all right, I now am responsible for this living being strapped, however imperfectly, into a car seat in the back of my car. And I have to ensure that this little person grows up and grows up well and emerges from my household, uh, you know, a, a decent human being. And I don't know how to do that. I don't know the first thing about that. And I better, I better figure it out. And this book, in some sense, is that journey where you're telling your soon-to-be college son that there are things that you need to think about as you go out into this wild world. You know, the Cat Stevens song, he's getting ready to go out there. You use the uh, Cats in the Cradle uh, mm -hmm. song. <laughs> which I find incredibly depressing. Oh, <laughs> it's the worst. It's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to that song. I think, oh my God, you know. <laughs> I, you know, I'd rather think of like the long and winding road or you know, something. <laughs> you talk about different themes that you want your son to think about. You say, I want you to remember at home, you're always welcome and you're always going to be comfortable. But when you go out into the world, you write, I hope that you will let go, that once in a while you'll seek out stuff that scares you and that you'll move in that direction. It's that stuff, wherever it winds up taking you, that will offer you the most rewards. And it was true. You know, I, I took my own advice. Part of the reason I wrote the book to begin with was because it made me profoundly uncomfortable to consider. When something scares you, there's a reason for that. There, there's some sort of stakes there. There's something repelling you because it means you're risking something. And if you look, if you sort of seek those things out, they force you to confront the parts of yourself that need work. The reason it scares you is because you may not feel up to the job. You may feel inadequate. You may feel like you're risking something emotionally. In my case with this book, it was all of those things. And I, I did reap the reward of it. I mean, you know, writing this book was really good for me. Just as a, as a person, it forced me to think about things that I hadn't considered in any meaningful way, in any significant way. And that, that was really helpful. And I do hope that both of my kids, my son and my daughter, seek those things out for themselves. That when something just feels too scary versus the thing that feels like, oh, that'll be fun and easy, every once in a while, go to the scary thing and see, see why it's scary and, and see what prospects it offers. Yeah. And you talk about different things that you want your son, but you say in parentheses with no slight intended that this is just as valuable advice 
for your daughter, but since your mm-hmm. son was the one who was leaving first, that's who it's it's directed to. Yeah. But you say there are things that they need to to sort of contemplate and be mindful of. And one of the things to be mindful of and maybe sort of careful about is pride. And you say mistaking pride for a value is a dangerous proposition. Mm -hmm. Because pride is, uh, is complicated. We should take pride in our accomplishments. We should absolutely give ourselves a pat on the back uh, every so often when we've done something that merits it. But pride can also be a roadblock. It can be the thing that prevents you from seeking help when you need help. It can be the thing that it can be an impediment to progress when you have too much of it. In a lot of ways, you know, pride can manifest itself in a lot of ways. One way it can manifest itself is fear because pride can be armor and armor always is designed to protect ourselves. And when we lower that pride and we expose ourselves, we're vulnerable. And in this life, there are times where you have to be vulnerable. You have to be the person who doesn't have all the answers. You have to be the person who doesn't know which way to go. You have to be the person who is strong enough to ask for help. Um, Yeah, pride, pride is tricky. You know, you need it and you have to know when to let it go. And you say of it that to be careful to not measure our lives by the sort of commercial accomplishments. You say uh, that Vince Lombardi said winning isn't everything. It's the only thing, but that's not right. It's really not right. And it's an impediment to sort of living the Socratic unexamined life, not worth living or, the Polonius in Hamlet to thy own self be true. There's pride can interfere with self-reflection, I guess is what you, what you say. One of the, one of the greatest gifts I think you can give yourself is continual self-interrogation. Always be asking yourself, what am I doing? You know, what is this making me happy? Is this moving me towards my goals of happiness or my other goals? Am I recognizable? to myself right now, meaning sometimes we change, you know, we evolve and, you know, to thine own self be true. Am I that same self that maybe I was five years ago, 10 years ago? How have I changed? What's different about me? Am I happy with this person? Do I need to move in another direction to recapture some happiness? That continual self-interrogation, I think will pay big dividends for you. And if you're just sort of content to be like, well, you know, I make a hundred thousand dollars a year and I've got a job title that says I'm a vice president of something, you know, I don't know what that really accomplishes. And, you know, I think most people intuitively understand that, that driving a nicer car than your neighbor may provide some sort of temporary balm, but 
you know, it, ultimately it doesn't mean anything. And even when you're driving it past your neighbor's house and flipping him the bird, you know, it doesn't mean anything. You know, that's not what's going to provide you with, with happiness. It doesn't fall under the categories of identity, community, and purpose. That's right. And I, I've said often that um, all you need in life to be successful is to be conversant in the lines of music written by Bob Dylan and John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And (laughs) there's no other reading that really is necessary. (laughs) But, and in fact, to that point in She Loves You, what do they say in the third stanza? Pride can hurt you too. Apologize Mm. to her. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Be the person who apologizes. I think that's, that's really good advice. You know, be the one to recognize that you have erred and don't let your pride stay in, in the way of that. Yeah. So the last sort of topic I want to talk about a bit is we talked a little bit about spirituality and the, discovering for yourself the, your own meaning of life. And I suppose you can watch Monty Python to figure out what the meaning of life is. But one of the things that you talk about in relationship to this spiritual journey and learning what the meaning of life is is what you call the added responsibility of Jewish people. You, Michael Schwartz, by birth, now Michael Ian Black, and tell us how you got your stage name so it'll make sense about this little bit of being Jewish. Oh, well, you know, Schwartz means black, and so I just went, oh, that's easy. <laughs> right. So from some Schwarzer, if you yeah. will, yeah. Um, to Schwartz to Schwarzer to to Michael Ian Black. Mm-hmm. But you do say that our history as Jews, I am Jewish as well, our history as Jews give us added responsibility. We're obligated to lift others up as a recognition of the privilege we've been afforded. So can you talk a little bit about what you think is this added responsibility that you're trying to teach your son? I don't think it's possible to grow up as a Jew without recognizing that we have historically undergone some extraordinary and tragic experiences. And because we have come through those and because, you know, as an American Jew, we live in a country that has more or less welcomed us and allowed us to become as American as anybody else. We owe it to the people who are undergoing similar trials and tribulations to lift them up and help them as a recognition of the trials and tribulations that we've been through, knowing that there were times in our history when people did not lend us a hand. We owe it to others to lend them ours. I do think it's a special responsibility that we have. I do think it's why, for example, American Jews were heavily involved in the American Civil Rights Movement. It's why um, we continue to be activists for causes that aren't necessarily our own. It's because I think it is maybe the most important part of our faith is recognizing that people suffer And when we have it within our ability to help them, 
we should. It is our obligation. Mm -hmm. In the conclusion of the book and in the conclusion of our conversation, you write to your son, proving again my point that you only need to read the lyrics of Lennon and McCartney and Bob Dylan to understand the world. You say to your son, the simple secret to manhood is love. All you need is love, as Lennon and McCartney sang, and you say, the simple secret to manhood is love. It's a truism. You have to keep discovering both to love and to be loved. Yeah. So can you take us out on that, Michael? One of the uh one of the things that I feel like I've thought more deeply about since the book has come out even is that there is something inherently romantic in men. Men are the ones who want to lead the charge. We're the ones who want to give our hearts and give our everything to lost causes, to, you know, uh, the woman we see from afar. We are excellent creatures when it comes to giving love. Where we often fall short is in knowing how to let down our guards enough to receive love. And I think receiving love may be the bigger challenge and the more important component of manhood. Because in order to receive love, you have to be able to lower that same shield that I talked about before. You have to be willing to discard your armor to let somebody else in. To really receive love is maybe the greatest gift we can give to somebody else. Because think about it, if, if you're that dude who wants to give love, you want that love to be received. And if it's just being met by a sort of impenetrable barrier, your purpose in life is being thwarted. Like as humans, our job is to give love. But in order to give it, we have to be able to receive it. And in order to receive it, we have to let down our guards. And in letting down our guards, we allow ourselves the potential to experience the fullness that is our own humanity. Importantly to that, you add as a final note, the need for self-forgiveness. Yeah, I mean, along with loving others and accepting their love, we have to do the same thing with ourselves. And that's maybe the biggest challenge. I mean, we are all our own worst critics. We all so often have a tendency to see ourselves in the worst light imaginable. I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. Like you have to figure out ways to love yourself too. I mean, it, it, it will make your life immeasurably better and it will make the lives of the people in your life immeasurably better if you're just not going around moping and talking about what a horrible abject failure you are. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to figure out how to love yourself with all your flaws. It's a terrific book, A Better Man, A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son. I hope that your son takes it mostly seriously and that all of us can learn these important lessons of patience and kindness and empathy and resilience and self-forgiveness 
because as we progress as humans, so does the world. Michael Ian Black, I'm very grateful for your presence on That Said with Michael Zeldin. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.